Today we are beginning a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Malachi. Here at Good Shepherd we believe in the benefits of a balanced diet when it comes to our Bible intake. Just, just as our bodies need carbs and fats and protein, we need the different parts of the Bible to build us up spiritually. It's been a while since we last studied a book in the prophecy section of the Bible, and so for the next couple of months we're going to make our way through the book of Malachi with occasional breaks, such as next week when Andrew is coming to preach for us. Our second Bible reading is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 on page 11 in the service program. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And I'd be grateful if you could keep that page open so we can all continue looking at those verses during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray for God's help. In Job chapter 23, Job says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Father, please give us the same spiritual hunger that Job had. And just as he treasured your word, would we ourselves treasure it this morning? For Jesus' sake, Amen. Have you ever found yourself thinking, if God loved me, surely he would show it by solving this great problem in my life? And have you ever gone a step further and thought to yourself, since God hasn't, solved my problem. Surely that means he doesn't really love me. If you have ever thought along those lines, you're not alone. That is what the Israelites were thinking in the time of the prophet Malachi. And in this morning's Bible passage, we see God graciously engaging with the Israelites as they question his love for them. God's reply to the Israelites all those centuries ago is still relevant today. It's relevant to you if you're wondering whether God truly loves you, whether he truly wants the very best for you. There are two parts to the rest of this sermon, and the heading for the first part is Israel's heartfelt question. Israel's heartfelt question. In verse 1, we're told that God himself, through the prophet Malachi, is speaking to Israel. And in verse 2, 
God says, I have loved you. The creator of the universe says to the Israelites, I have loved you. We see the Israelites' response in the next line, How have you loved us? You could call that an ungrateful question. You could call it an unbelieving question. But I think it's probably best to call it a heartfelt question. If we come alongside the Israelites at that point in their history and think ourselves into their shoes, we'll see that it's a genuine question. Life was troublesome for them at that time. It was hard for them to see how God had loved them. We don't know precisely when Malachi prophesied to Israel, but we do know the general time period, and we know what life was like for the Israelites then. Malachi prophesied during what is known as the post-exilic period, the period of time after Israel's exile in Babylon. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian conquered the Babylonians, and he allowed the Israelites to leave Babylon and go home. It was good for the Israelites to be back in their homeland, there's no doubt about that, but they were still serving foreign rulers. Their province was just one zip code among many in the Persian Empire. And as you can see from the map printed there on page 11, the Israelites' zip code, Judea, was tiny province of Judea after the, the exile was even smaller than Rhode Island, the smallest of America's 50 states. Rhode Island is comically small. It's so small, map makers can't even fit the letters R-I onto the state itself. They have to draw a line out from the state into the Atlantic Ocean and stick R-I at the end of the line. But even Rhode Island has more square miles of territory than the province of Judea after the exile. The Israelites' drastically reduced territory wasn't their only problem after they came back from Babylon. When they tried to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the neighboring people groups wouldn't let them. The temple rebuilding project had to be put on ice for 20 years, which shows how weak the Israelites were in relation to their neighbors. By Malachi's time, the temple had been rebuilt. We know that because it's mentioned later in chapter 1. But the rebuilt temple was a pokey little structure compared with the great temple built by King Solomon, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So the Israelites' province was tiny, they were weak, their temple was unimpressive, and on top of all that, we know from Malachi chapter 3, that there have recently been several failed harvests. Pests had eaten the crops and the vines were no longer producing fruit. That historical background helps us understand the question in verse 2. It helps us grasp why the people respond so negatively when God says those marvellous words, I have loved you. They say in reply, how have you loved us? Because when they look around, they don't see evidence of his love. They can't see anything to make them feel good about their lives. They see weakness and failure. To them, God's declaration of love sounds meaningless. 
It's time for us to hear God's answer. The heading for the second half of the sermon is God's surprising answer. God's surprising answer. God's answer starts in the middle of verse 2 and goes right to the end of the passage, but it's summed up early on with the words, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Jacob was the founding father of Israel. His brother Esau was the founding father of Edom. When God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, he's talking not only about those two brothers, but also about the nations they founded. God is inviting Israel to compare itself with Edom. That is how God replies to Israel's heartfelt question. You could put it like this. We see how God loves us when we see how he judges others. We see how God loves us when we see how he judges others. I'm using the words we and us because those words Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated are quoted in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9, as we heard in our first Bible reading. They are relevant to our period of salvation history. God's point is also true. God's point here in Malachi chapter 1, it's also true in our period of salvation history. We see how he loves us when we see how he judges others. Now, I think many of us will find God's answer surprising for at least two reasons. First, it's surprising that God wants us to compare ourselves with others. Comparing yourself with others, it feels competitive and prideful. Shouldn't God's people feel sorry for those who are worse off than us, instead of feeling better about our position by comparing our position with theirs? Well, it's certainly true that comparison can be done in a prideful, competitive way, and that is wrong, it's ungodly. But it's possible for us to compare our situation with other people's situation in a godly way. For example, imagine a Christian praying this prayer for the people of Ukraine. Thank you, God, for the home comforts I enjoy that so many Ukrainians can't enjoy at this time, including my Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ. Please restore the Ukrainian people to their homes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that prayer. And for the Christian praying that prayer, comparison, home comforts we enjoy compared with the home comforts they're they're not getting to enjoy, Comparison stirs up gratitude to God in that example without any prideful competitiveness at all. So comparison can be done in a godly way. The second reason why God's answer is surprising is because we find it very uncomfortable to think about God hating people. We prefer to think about how God loves all people. And he does. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 raises the question, how can God hate Esau and his descendants if God loves all the world? 
The answer is that there is a sense in which God loved Esau. There's no question about that. But there is another sense in which God hated Esau. Both are true. Esau and the Edomites acted sinfully in God's world. And Psalm 5 verse 5 says that God hates not just the sin, but also the sinner. Psalm 5 verse 5 says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Psalm 5 verse 5, I'll read it again. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. In God's heart, there is both love and hate towards the unsaved. It's different with his people. It's different with those who have received his salvation. Because God has taken all our wrongdoing away from us and placed it upon his son. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 1 Peter 2 verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Hallelujah. There's nothing left for God to hate in us because our sins have been taken away from us and they've been punished in Christ as he died on the cross. When believers behave sinfully, as we all do, our sin grieves God and he wants us to turn from it. He commands us to turn from it with his help. But our sin, the sin of God's people, doesn't make him hate us because we're in Christ. We're united to Christ, God's beloved son. And our sin has already been punished in Christ when he died on the cross. None of that is true for unsaved people. Their sins haven't been taken away from them and punished in Christ. As it says in Ephesians 2 verse 3, they're children of wrath, meaning they are the objects of God's wrath, unless they turn to him for salvation. In today's passage, that very sobering reality can be seen in those words, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Well, I hope God's answer now seems somewhat less surprising to us. And so let's now look more closely at verses 3 and 4, where Malachi sets out God's purposes for the Edomites, Esau's descendants. Please look down with me to verse 3. God says, Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We were thinking earlier about how weak the Israelites were after the exile, and yet at least their nation was back in its homeland. The Edomites had lost their homeland, and here in Malachi chapter 1, God solemnly pledges that they won't ever get it back again. 
If you look at the map printed in the service program, you can see that the territory beneath the Dead Sea in the bottom right-hand corner of the map is marked Edom. By the way, you may have heard of the ancient city of Petra. That's the main landmark in that particular region south of the Dead Sea. You may have seen its stunning classical buildings carved out of the red rock face. You may well have seen photos of those buildings. Buildings carved out of rock, rather like the faces of the presidents carved out of Mount Rushmore. Petra is in that region south of the Dead Sea. It was built before the time of Jesus, but it wasn't built by the Edomites. It was built by the Nabataeans, a different people group. And historians think it was the Nabataeans who forced the Edomites to leave their ancient homeland. And that's why the map in the service program has the words former territory beneath the word Edom. The Edomites drifted over to the region beneath Judea, named Idumea. Idumea sounds like Edom, and that's not a coincidence. That was where the Edomites lived, as you can see on the map. The Edomites became known as the Idumeans, but they were never able to put down lasting roots. And at some point during the Roman Empire, the Idumeans ceased to exist as a people group. God was opposed to that nation. He judged it and in his sovereignty ultimately put an end to it. But that doesn't mean all the Edomians were barred from his saving mercy. No, we know from Mark chapter 3 that there were Edomians among the crowds of people who came to be healed by Jesus and to hear him preach. Mark mentions Idumeans in Mark chapter 3. There were Idumeans among the crowds who heard Jesus proclaim the good news of salvation, the good news that God so loved all the world. He sent his one and only son that whoever may believe in, whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Well, we're almost ready to apply this passage to our own lives in New York City, far away from the changing boundary lines of the ancient Middle East. But before we do that, it is essential for us to view the story of Eden through the eyes of the Israelites. We have to keep in mind that from the Israelite perspective, Eden was a menacing enemy. We know from the book of Obadiah that when the Israelites fled from the Babylonians at the time of the exile, the Edomites cut off their escape routes and killed them or handed them over to the Babylonians. So when the Israelites heard these prophecies in verses 3 and 4 about Edom's downfall, they would have felt understandable relief in response to these prophecies about Edom. In that period of salvation history, it was a good thing when the enemies of God's people were struck down. It was, it was also a good thing when the enemies of God's people repented and believed, as we see in Nineveh, in the book of Jonah. But as well as that good thing, 
there was the good thing of God's, the enemies of God's people being struck down. We have to accept that in Old Testament times, that was a good thing. It's not just here in Malachi, elsewhere in the Old Testament. David's military victories over the surrounding peoples are seen as good outcomes. Acts of God's mercy and kindness. We live in a different stage of God's salvation plan, and it's hard for us to relate to that earlier mindset, but we have to take the original meaning of this passage seriously so that we can find the right point of contact with our own period of salvation history, with our own situation. And when we think ourselves into the shoes of the Israelites, we can see, I think, why Malachi says to them in verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. For the Israelites, Edom's downfall revealed God's greatness. God demonstrated his greatness through judgment. And that's the point of contact with our period of salvation history. God demonstrates his greatness in judgment. That is still true today. It's a whole Bible truth. A day is coming when God will put a stop to all human evil through his judgment. The mass shootings, the murderous invading armies, cruel abuse of power all around the world. On that future day, God's greatness will be revealed through judgment. But that's not all. We mustn't forget that everything from the middle of verse 2 onwards is God's answer to Israel's question, how have you loved us? We've seen that God answers the question by saying, essentially, this is how I've loved you. I've spared you Edom's punishment. And so when a corner of your heart says to God, how have you loved me? God's answer to you is very similar. He's loved you by sparing you the punishment that other people will receive. This is love, we're told in 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How has God loved us? By sending his son to stand in for us as our substitute, bearing our sins, judged for our sins, punished for our sins. Jesus was condemned in our place so that we wouldn't be condemned. Jesus was condemned in our place so that we won't receive the punishment that other people will receive. That is how God has loved us. And if you're listening today as someone who's not yet following Jesus, please come into God's love today. Don't keep your distance. Receive God's love by putting your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of all your wrongdoing. In Matthew 25, Jesus looks beyond his death and resurrection to the future day of judgment. That day when God's greatness is revealed in judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, 
and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So that's all nations, all the people of the world separated into two groups. Jesus describes the group placed on his left as cursed. And he says, this is still in Matthew chapter 25, they will go away to eternal punishment. He describes the other group as those who are blessed. And he says they will go into eternal life. Think ahead to that future day. If you're a real Christian, you'll be placed by Jesus in that group on his right, the blessed group. You won't be there on your own merit. You'll be there because God in his mercy gave you saving faith in Jesus. And as you enter into eternal life, while the other group enters into eternal punishment, will you say to God at that moment, how have you loved us? No, your whole being will overflow with thankfulness for God's love as you see yourself spared eternal punishment and entering into eternal life through Jesus and with Jesus. On that day, there won't be a single person in the group set apart for eternal life saying to God, how have you loved us? Now, God's love isn't only seen or only experienced on that future day. There are countless ways in which he acts lovingly towards his people in this life. God's love can even be seen in the hard circumstances we experience in this life because the Bible says God can use suffering to make our character more Christ-like. But Malachi's point is that we shouldn't look to our current circumstances for evidence of God's love. Instead, we should fix our eyes on the judgment we've been saved from. A preacher named Julian Bidgood puts the point like this. We may feel as though we're missing out at the moment, but it will be crystal clear on the day of judgment how much it means to have received God's love. I'll read that quote again. We may feel as though we're missing out at the moment, but it will be crystal clear on the day of judgment how much it means to have received God's love. This biblical way of thinking about God's love helps Christians to be patient in hard circumstances, not losing hope or surrendering to despair. This biblical way of thinking about God's love helps us to trust that God knows what he's doing. When our circumstances seem to go from bad to worse, we can trust that he's lovingly supervising everything in our lives because of the love he's already shown to us in Jesus. In Romans 8 verse 32, the Apostle Paul says that God will graciously give us all things, all things, all we need in this life to keep following Jesus. And in the world to come, more good things than we could possibly imagine, including the best thing of all, his own friendship forever. But listen to the start of that verse 
Romans 8 verse 32, that God will graciously give us all things verse. Listen to the start of it. Listen to Paul's logic. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he's talking about the cross. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is confident in God's love because of the love God showed when he sent his own son to die for us. That is how we know God loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, the love you have shown us. Thank you that through your sending of your son Jesus, through his willingness to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place, we have been spared your judgment, the judgment others will receive according to the Bible. We are so grateful to you for your love. Amen.